0: Hey, so uh, it's a playoff season. Any football fans in the room? Yeah? Any uh, Kansas City Chiefs fans in the room? At your own risk. Now, I grew up uh, cheering for the Bengals, you know, because I grew up in Kentucky, and that was the closest. All right, all right. That's what I'm talking about. Heck yeah. And so it's been a long it's been a long drought season. Our, our, our buddy Mike Mason knows what that feels like with a, being a Tampa Bay fan. And so they got their moment in the sun and now they'll go back to obscurity now that their quarterback is retired. And so um, this series, we'll talk about playing hurt, but we'll just capitalize a bit on the NFL culture and what it means to play when you're hurt. And so just to get you in the mood, we created this. We'll show it uh, at least something like this each week. I don't know if you're a football fan or not, I, I don't consider myself a rabid fan by any stretch, but I, I love to watch sporting events, and, and I love to see competition, and I love to see people excel, and I love to see fun things happen, and I, I'll never forget the first NFL game I went to. Um, I, I watched NFL growing up and seen several games, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually found myself, you know, mile high, pretty good seats, pretty low, You know, and you're watching NFL players, so you're watching some of the best athletes in the world, or so I had heard, and you know, you just have this impression from TV, but I remember watching a player do an all-out sprint down the sideline during one play. First of all, I couldn't believe how fast he went. You can't tell on TV how fast they're going. I mean, you hear the numbers, you know, their splits and their times, but until you see it, you think, okay, he's not human This is not right. And then through a helmet, he looks over his shoulder and a bullet comes for him. This football that's probably hard as a stone when it's thrown that fast. And he just, with soft hands, reaches up and catches it. It was a thing of beauty. And I thought, it's the first and only time I've ever thought this. I don't know what he's paid, but it's not enough. (laughs) I can't believe a human can do that. That's incredible. The level of competition, uh, physical prowess. Thought the same thing when I had good seats at an NBA game too. I thought, well, they're taller than I thought and many other thoughts as well. The athletic achievements are really incredible to watch. This, this idea of playing herd, of course, is just part of being an athlete. The, the first time I heard a sermon that was entitled Playing Herd, it's a little sentimental for me, it was preached by my pastor growing up, Don and I grew up in the same church in Lexington, Kentucky. Lexington had kind of a sports culture. Uh, the University of Kentucky is right there, and they have a strong basketball lore and, and even back in the day, not anymore, but a little bit this year, but some, some football lore as well. Bear Bryant got to start there and, and so sports was a big deal in our town. We were a big little town, you know, some college athletics put us on the map, but we weren't that big of a city and and so the pastor that we grew up with, actually who married us, married Donna's parents. You know, there was a few years between those two weddings, just to be clear. I mean, I know it's Kentucky, but it was, it was still, a, <laughs> still a few years between them. Baptized me and my family. It had a lot to do with me being in ministry and, and my dad coming back to church when I was a little kid. And he led this larger church in central Kentucky in Lexington. And he, he preached this sermon called Playing Hurt. He did it when I was in high school. And then he began to preach the same sermon every year on the same day. You know what day it was? Right, Super Bowl Sunday. In fact, he's more known for this sermon. He's, his past, he, he passed away just, uh, just a few years ago. He's more known for this sermon, and not the one I'm going to preach. Mine's different. I couldn't preach his again. Um, it was 30 years ago. I listened to it this week just for nostalgia purposes. It was really interesting to hear somebody preach something that's 30 years old. Some things don't age well, you know what I'm saying? So uh, he's more known, Super Bowl Sunday was a bigger day. He's more known for that sermon than almost Easter Sunday, really, at our church. It became his thing. And, uh, and, and pastors all over the, the country would watch it, churches would watch it, all that sort of thing. But this idea of playing hurt has captured my imagination as we've come out of COVID, for lots of reasons. Many are obvious to all of us, but the things that are connected to playing hurt deserve our attention right now because the world is in desperate need for people who are in the game, who have decided we won't sit on the sidelines. We will not just be bystanders. We won't allow culture to be hijacked by a few, whatever you think the few is. We will engage in a way that allows us to be a part of what's happening right in front of us. You're needed and it's necessary. It was through this sermon that I learned about a man that was in our church. I had no idea he was in our church. I had never met him. It's a larger church. His name's Tommy Bell and he was an NFL referee. And that's not all he was. In Lexington, Kentucky, he was an attorney, and so he had a successful law practice as well. But he also began, as a young man, refereeing games, all kinds of games football, basketball, you name it. And then he got so good at it, he got picked up by the Southeastern Conference and began doing some of their football games. And then eventually, the NFL got some attention his way, and so. He entered the NFL, it's kind of unusual, as a referee. Now, I don't know if you know much about the officiating teams of the NFL, but there's all sorts of people in striped shirts out there, all sorts of officials on the field. There's some judges and line judges and back judges and all that sort of thing, but there's one man on the field that is the referee for every NFL game. And usually it takes a while to work up those ranks and become somebody that serves as an NFL referee, but Tommy Bell began his tenure as a referee and never looked back. He still practiced law on the side and in the off-season, but he worked uh, many years as an NFL rep. In fact, he, he refereed uh, Super Bowl three, head referee for Super Bowl seven, and several championships, and he was a, a pretty unique man. In fact, he's the only referee that has refereed a Super Bowl and an NCAA Final Four. It's kind of unique. He was highly respected in the NFL and he retired in 1976. And when he retired, he was coming near the end of his season, and the season was an interesting season if you remember much about football, and I've studied a little bit just to be sure I had my bearings. I was only 10 at the time, but that particular year in the NFL, there was a heated rivalry between the Raiders and the Steelers. They played earlier in the season, and it looked like it was going to be you know, pretty down and dirty physical, maybe a few fights were breaking out, and they wondered if they would end up meeting later in the season. And as it turned out, as the season got near the close, after the first of the year, they ended up in the playoffs together. And they were going to play each other in the AFC championship game. It's Tommy Bell's retirement year. And so the NFL said to him, hey, if you want, you can do the Super Bowl. We'd love to give you that. Or if you want, you can do the AFC championship game. And without missing a beat, he said, oh, I'll do the AFC championship game. In fact, there was so much buzz about the Raiders-Steelers game that year that they thought that riots might break out. You know, obviously, the rivalry super intense. They knew there would be at least some attempted fights on the field. And Tommy Bell, well, everybody thought he could be the one that would keep heads cool, and in fact, he did. Uh, a few penalties through the game, no fights whatsoever. Everything happened without an incident. And the NFL announcers, all of the league referees knew, well, that's because Tommy Bell was at the helm, and he took care of business. It was a story that Tommy Bell had told that made it into one of these playing hurt sermons that caught my attention, though, and that I remember from the years that I was growing up. It's about a man that, if you're a Chiefs fan, then you know his name. This is Fred Arbanis. I don't know if you know who Fred Arbanis is, but he was a tight end for the Chiefs, and He uh, was a very accomplished tight end. In fact, for a couple years, he held the most receptions for the Chiefs, most receiving yards for the Chiefs. He was an incredible individual and really a philanthropist and did a lot for the city of Kansas City. He, He actually started as a Michigan State Spartan when he first played football and then went on to play first for the Dallas Texans who eventually became the Kansas City Chiefs and had a long career. Fred Arbanis was a very unique man and he was at the height of his career and it was only going up when a very unfortunate incident happened in his life. He was walking downtown, Kansas City, one of the sidewalks and a couple of thugs grabbed him and began to trying to mug him. He was attacked by them and severely injured, hit in the head. As a result of this incident, Fred Arbanis lost an eye. Now he's a tight end. You know, balls zooming at his head. Depth perception is pretty important to Fred and He wasn't quite sure what it would mean for his career, but he decided to stick with it. In fact, it happened in December and he missed the Pro Bowl in January. He would eventually rehab and come back and eventually win, help win, as a starting player, one of Kansas City's Super Bowl wins. Impressive player. Well, the year, the season after, He lost his eye. He was playing in a game that happened to be reffed by Tommy Bell. In the middle of this game, Fred Arbanis is on the field and he gets hit hard from the side. Helmet, head hit, no rules back then. And in that moment, Fred's eye, his glass eye, popped out of his head and out of his helmet. And he stopped play. and he said, to the officiating team, and Tommy Bell, the ref, he said, I, 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 can't, I can't find my eye. I need to find my eye. <laughs> and not everybody knew. It wasn't the day of the internet when everybody knew everything about everybody. Not everybody knew that, that he had a glass eye until then. And so, play was stopped. They had brought a bunch of people on the field, extra. They are all on their hands and knees. Just picture it. All in the grass, looking for... Fred Arbanis' eye. And Fred's kind of, you know, checking himself. He's got his helmet off. He's on the sideline with Tommy. And they finally find his eye and they just wash it off and he pops it back in. This is when men were men, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Before that happened, he's on the sideline with Tommy Bells. True story, documented by several people. Tommy Bell says to Fred Arbanis. I didn't know you had a glass eye. That's incredible. I mean, Fred, you you, you make your living with your sight and depth perception. How do you even play? This is incredible. I can't believe this is your life. And they had a conversation about it. And finally, Tommy says, I mean, you've lost one eye. I mean, what what are you going to do if if something happens to your other eye? And Fred Arbanis didn't miss a beat. And he said, well, Mr. Bell, I guess I'll become a referee. (laughs) I just love that story. I, <laughs> you talk about playing hurt and what it means to play hurt. People in the NFL, they know, they know what it's about. They know what happens. There's a, another picture. They're not looking for his eye, by the way. That's Fred Arbanis <laughs> Been over. It's just a, just, a, just a different game. But in the NFL, it seems that playing hurt is just part of the deal. One NFL player says it this way. Mark Lillybridge, whose name you probably don't know because it was because of ruptured discs that it ended his career, there is not one guy on any of the 32 NFL teams right now who is not hurt. All of them are dealing with some sort of ailment, big or small, and that includes the kickers and the punters. I love how he throws a little shade their way, even them, right? NFL players are expected to play through being hurt, But not only is it a little sentimental to me, and not only is it especially appropriate for our moment in time, not just because of the pandemic, but because of our culture and how we treat one another, but it seems that playing hurt is the order of the day, not just for NFL players, but for us too. And not just that, but it's been the case for athletes all along. In fact, the book was written by a gentleman by the name of Pierce Scranton, Pierce was the... uh, Team physician for the Seattle Seahawks for years, and he wrote this entire book about treating and evaluating the Warriors of the NFL. One of the players that he had on his team for many of those years was a gentleman by the name of Greg Gaines, and Greg was a linebacker. And maybe you know Greg and his story a little bit, but he played hurt a lot. In fact, one of the chapters in his book is is called the, The Toughest Players I've Ever Known in the NFL, and Greg is one of them. And in that chapter, this is what he says. This is what happened to Greg while he was team physician for the Seahawks. He dislocated his toe. He attached a steel toe, a little orthotic to his shoe, taped up his toe, and went back in the game. Dislocated his shoulder in the playoffs, popped his shoulder back in, and he went back in. After the game, tests revealed that he had a muscle tear, but Greg just snapped, strapped on a harness for the next three games. Also played an entire season with a dislocated finger taped up next to his other finger. He ruptured the long head of his bicep, kept playing anyway, and today Greg still has a big Popeye bulge on his bicep because it was never healed properly, never fixed right. During one game, he, tear, he tore open his finger. Dr. Scranton just stapled it shut without anesthetic and he kept on playing. You can grow groan if you want, it's fine. But only after rupturing several discs in his back did he decide to quit. Now you can question the the logic or the, the, the wisdom or even the sanity of playing that way. But there's something about playing hurt that teaches you and me about perseverance, about focus, about not giving up when it would be easier to just quit. And deciding that we will keep on even in spite of how we feel or what we experience in life. And it's not just athletics where this is the place. It's not just athletics where this occurs. In fact, when you read the New Testament, it seems like Paul goes to sport and athletic endeavors to compare life of faith with what it means to endure in some sort of physical contest. And he does it. Over and over and over again. He says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And so, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the vast majority of what we have in our New Testament, he begins to articulate what it means to persevere and play while you're hurt in the context of his letters, and all he's doing is writing to people like you and me and saying, look, I know that faith is hard, and I know that you're finding yourself in a difficult, tough spot, but you need to push on just a little bit. It's about something else. It's not about what you feel in the moment, and I know the pain is distracting, but run in such a way as if you're going for the prize, and he knows I'm going to get the prize. He knows you will too. He's not naive when it comes to theology. Our theology is based on his inspired words, but he says, this is how you persevere. Even when it comes to the end of his life, he thinks this way. Paul does. He writes to his young protege, Timothy, in ministry. He says this, I have what? Say it with me. Fought the... When Paul says this phrase... He's calling to mind of the people that would have read this in the first century of the ancient Olympic Games, which are very different than our Olympic Games. Our, our Olympic Games are very civilized and proper, and they should be. I and mean, we've, we've evolved a bit since, since then, haven't we? And so he's describing a boxing match. And their boxing matches were a little different. It involved a big stone bench, a couple of men chained to them so they could not leave the bench, and fought to the death. In fact, Paul, when he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, he gives us this picture of a struggle, that faith is indeed a struggle, that it can be intense, that it can be relentless, and I bet you have felt that in your own life. I bet you have experienced that very thing. I bet there have been times, as Paul describes the struggle, that it resonates with you if you have ever thought why should I bother? Maybe I should just throw in the towel. I'm not sure I can keep going. What's this all about? Why do we even do this? Whatever your this is, we all feel like giving up because it is a struggle. I think some of us are under the illusion that once we invite God into our life or we try to sort things out spiritually or we finally Give up and let God have his way with us, that life will become one path of peace and ease or goodness. And one brief look at the New Testament shatters that illusion as a myth. And in fact, it is a myth. Faith makes your life more real, more rich, meaningful, but easier? Not really. In fact, there are many things about it that make it harder. I think some of us have labored under the illusion that look if I, if I do what's right, then things will go well. If I take care of business, God will take care of me. If I'm obedient, God will bless me. If I work hard, I'll get what's coming to me. And we believe that there is a linear approach to life, A then B, A then B. And this couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, it's true. You can do some things that will make your life easier, right? I mean, you ought to live within your means. That's just smart. You should live within your means. Debt's a bad thing. It'll weigh you down. All that's true. You should probably not cheat on your taxes. Prison time is really a big inconvenience in your life, and that's just not a good way to go. There are lots of things you can do to make your life easier, but even Jesus made it clear when he said, in this world, you will have What? He said this, this this prophecy that Jesus gives is true of my life and is true of your life. In fact, odds are there's a significant amount of your either distance from faith or confusion about God or resistance to knowing him or walking with Jesus that is directly tied to this statement and how difficult it is. Jesus didn't say, in this world you will have trouble unless you. He had no qualifiers. This side of heaven, this earth that we live on, it's got lots of trouble. And this is the beauty of the Christian walk as far as I'm concerned. That the scripture paints a picture of something that is real and true and raw and honest. And at the same time, full of immense hope. Incredible, undaunted hope. Hope. And this is true in every story, every person you read about, and it's true in all the principles that you read in Scripture. In fact, our passage for today paints this picture better than any passage I think I could point to. And, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this, and again, you'll, see, you'll hear some athletic language or some playing while hurt language, but he, he writes this in the, in, in the first person plural. And so we ought to all read this together, okay? If you're at home, you can say it out loud in your living room or wherever you are as well. So let's all read it together. Here we go. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are, that's right. And this is the beauty of the story that God is telling with your life and the powerful nature of what it means to read the truth in Scripture. This is absolutely a raw, direct, unashamed assessment of life. And it is filled right in the middle of it with undaunted hope, unmitigated hope, unashamed hope. And that hope is what we cling to. And we cling to it. Well, we have to cling to that hope. It's clear. He says we are not crushed. We are not driven to despair. We are never abandoned by God. And we are not destroyed. And this truth, capital T truth, which means it's true for me and for you, for all people, all places, and all times, is what we cling to even while we watch the world burn. Because we know That scripture makes it clear. Jesus says in Revelation, Behold, I am making all things, do you know what? New. Some of you do. And He is. He is making all things new, and it's true. And you say, Well, it doesn't look that way to me. This is the essence of hope believing in what we cannot see because we believe that God is at work, and it is real, and it will not fade and he is making all things new. In fact, Paul says in the letters that he is, this is the phrase, reconciling all things, all things, doesn't matter what it is, all things to himself. In other words, we're all becoming along the same path, directly surrendered, obedience, worship to God. And it may not seem like that to you with some people in your family or some folks you work with, but God, well, his promises are true and they always, always come to fruition. And so we are not crushed, not driven to despair, never abandoned by God, we are not destroyed. I know you're playing hurt and the reason I know it is because Paul says in the collective we that we are pressed and we are perplexed and we are hunted down and we are knocked down and that is true as well. Most of the Christian life is learning how to hold these two ideas in tension, that there is hope to be had, and yet you and I, we're, we're playing hurt. In fact, almost every story in Scripture points to this tension as truth, and most people just have a hard time leaning into both at the same time, because they feel like they are mutually exclusive, but they're not. They're both true. True. Joseph, in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, patriarch Joseph, betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery. Can you imagine a hurt so deep? Some of our hurts come from the people that we trust or love the most. They come from other people that we live with. They come from people that we had no idea they had such capacity for hatred or hurt or pain or evil, and it's inflicted on us by someone else. I bet some of your hurts are like that. I bet they are just like the hurt that Joseph experienced. I'm sure he felt pressed and perplexed, knocked down, in fact, hunted down. Moses found himself in a 40 year self imposed exile because of his anger management issues. Nobody did it to Moses, Moses did it to himself. And so he expressed what he thought was a sense of justice but in the process hurt and injured, in fact killed another and now he finds himself in exile off in the desert living in a pit of shame, not willing to face who he was or what happened or how to deal with it. 40 years he lived with this hurt until God began to call him out of that place of shame and fear. I bet some of your hurt is because of things that you've done. You didn't know you were capable of. You had no idea you would ever do something like that. And maybe it's even secret. Maybe you've kept it hidden from others. Maybe you wish that you could keep it hidden from God, and it keeps you in a place. Of inactivity, and you're still playing hurt. And the reason you're playing hurt is because, well, the sun comes up and work calls and you have to do another day. And here comes another task and stuff just has to get done. And so you move through your week with this wound playing hurt. This is what it's like, not just in the NFL, in life. Jacob, Jacob has an encounter with God. And his encounter with God, a long night of, well, the Hebrew Bible translates it, wrestling. He finds himself with a wound. In fact, his his hip is so injured, he walks with a limp for the rest of his life because of his experience with God. And some of you have had experiences and you can't blame your family, you can't even blame yourself, and all you can do is put the blame on something, somebody, that is sovereign, had to cause it, or at least allow it, and this is surely God's fault. And Jacob limps. Some of your hurts are because of exactly what Jacob experienced, and so you have wrestled with God. And you've tried to pin him down to get the answer that you want, and he remains silent. And you wonder, should I even take another step with him? Why would I even bother well over the next few weeks we'll talk about what it means to play hurt and why we would even bother suiting up going in there's lots of things that scripture can teach us about our days and our times and what it means to play hurt but for this week and this week alone you have to know that if you're going to stay in the game if you're going to keep on playing I mean, let's be honest it defies logic It defies logic. You hear stories about some of these NFL players and you just think, I don't think I wanna do anything that badly, and yet you are in the midst of building a company, raising a family, trying to build a marriage or restore relationships that are broken, and it is much harder than what any of the NFL players engage in because it requires 100% of all of you, your heart and your soul, to engage in it. And so there's one thing you can keep in mind, there's one mindset, there's one perspective that will help you this week consider and ponder what it means to play hurt and why you would even stay in the game. May we this week find ways to remind ourselves or at least remember why we do what we do. It's really that simple. This is the only way that an NFL player can find themselves deciding that they will go ahead and you know, get the shot or take the ice bath or whatever it is. There has to be an overarching reason why you would want to engage in such abuse or self-torture. And this isn't true, of course, just for those physical endeavors in our life. It's absolutely true for everything worth accomplishing, that when it gets difficult, when the race feels too long, when we feel perplexed and crushed and abandoned, The only way for us to keep our eyes ahead and focus is to remember why you do what you do. And I don't know what it is that you do, but I bet if you wanted to, this week you could frame it in a way that would help you understand that you are made in God's image and that you are in fact, regardless of what you do, an answer to Jesus's prayer, may your kingdom come and may your will be done. And you say, well, that's a stretch, Phil. what I do is I I help build houses or all I do is I slap numbers together for companies so they can figure out the possibility of something or I don't, I don't do anything. I'm retired. I just kind of sit around and if that's the case, we need to talk. But for most of you, (laughs) the what behind what you do should be framed and thought about in terms of who God made you to be and how you are bringing his love, his light and his mercy to this earth. And that can be true for every teacher in the room, every engineer in the room, every stay-at-home mom in the room, every whatever you are in the room. Donna, my wife, is a RN. She works in hospice work and she works in an a inpatient care center. So it's people who are on hospice service, they have a diagnosis that means death is looming, you know, coming, imminent, not in days or weeks, could be months, but they also have acute symptoms, and so they're in their inpatient care center for a short period of time. So over the last couple of years especially, she's come home, and she'll tell me about her day. She'll tell me about interactions she has with families. These are families that are facing some very difficult circumstances, and they're trying to navigate the healthcare system. Anybody in here try to navigate the healthcare system? It's a joy, isn't it? I mean, they just pay bills just right and left, no issue at all. So she's dealing with people that are in the most acute emotional circumstances. They're dealing with some of the most complex issues that we all deal with. So she'll come home and she'll tell me about an interaction, a conversation, and an interaction with a family, for example. And she's explaining it to me, and she's a good storyteller. She matches their expressions, she even matches their volume, you know, she matches their phrases. She can remember direct quotes. So she tells me the whole story. And these stories aren't about any of you, I promise. Uh, and I'll say the thing that I think immediately when she's telling me the story about a family who completely lost their minds in the middle of the hospice hallway outside the door of their loved one's room. And I'll say to her, why, why, why are you going back tomorrow? Why would you sign up for that? You, know, you don't have to work. You just come home. And before it's even out of my mouth, you know, we're just having a free-flowing discussion, right? Before it's even out of my mouth, I know why she's going back tomorrow. Because in the middle of the pain or the struggle or the abuse or the egregious receiving end of what she experienced, she remembers why she does what she does. And she knows that some of these families are in the worst way possible, and dealing with the most stressful circumstances that they could be dealing with. In that moment, instead of returning hurt for hurt, on good days, and probably 99 times out of 100, she'll return kindness for struggle. Light for darkness. She'll return love for judgment. She'll give the benefit of the doubt and help them find their way, And usually they come to their senses and come back. And it's uh, just like in the movies. It's a very nice ending. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just hurt that's left. And the only reason why a teacher in our faith community would decide to go back into the setting right now that they're in, well, it's not for the incredible pay and the amazing benefits and the fact that your children are so obedient and kind and It's because they have decided that their what is that they're shaping the minds of a generation to come. And they want to use their time and their energy to do that very thing. That's why they do their what. What is your what? I I build houses, no, no, not, not that what. There's a reason why God made you. You've been made in his image. You use your talents and your abilities to bring his kingdom here on earth. That can happen whether you're swinging a hammer or shoving data around a spreadsheet or just connecting with your neighbors who need to be seen and known. You will be able to play hurt if you understand how to frame your what. You can get through it. You can forgive. You can love. And you can give mercy to people because you know Someday you're gonna need the very same mercy back. You can play hurt if you remember the why behind your what and understand that, well, I I just don't work to make a paycheck. I I work to make a paycheck to fund the various things that make this world a different place for these people in these ways. Here's what I would challenge you to do this week is, is sit down thoughtfully, quiet, everything off, devices away, screens away, maybe a piece of paper in front of you And ask this question of God in his presence. Lord, I I need to understand how what I do and and why would I do changes and frames your kingdom here on earth and how it affects the people around me. Because I want to be used by you, Lord. It's the only reason that a life is worth living is for something that outlasts itself. And because of this, I want to be used in these ways. So help me to do that. This is why the great resignation throughout COVID is so incredible, isn't it? the, The title of the message is Don't Give Up. That doesn't mean you shouldn't quit your job. Some of you should probably quit your job, for goodness sakes, because the what that you do needs to change and shift towards something that is significant, or at least that you can frame in a significant way that allows you to endure and to have hope. And that can be anything that you believe God's called you to in his image, for his purposes, doing his thing. And that will help you play hurt. Let me guide you through a prayer that might help, and you can maybe use some of these pieces this week as you think and ponder. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your love and mercy, and we ask that you would give us wisdom as we seek you. Lord, uh, we, we want to know that our lives matter beyond this moment, or beyond what we collect, or beyond what we accomplish, or beyond our fragile egos, do we want to believe that our interactions with people will give them something of you, something of love and mercy and grace. Lord, there's some of us here in the room and listening online that interact with people around such a variety of subjects. It could be all of the things that they're trying to get done in this world, houses that they want to build or problems that they need to fix or issues in a work setting that seem to be without solutions. Lord, some of us interact with family members, neighbors, and friends, and some of us are the recipients of their their problems and their issues because we have ears and we're compassionate and we listen thoughtfully. Lord, you have placed us here to be instruments of your love and peace, of your grace. And we can easily get caught up in all of the issues that are pressing in on our culture and we can forget why we're here and what we're to be about. So Lord, would you give us clarity this week? Would you give each of us, me included, the, the wisdom and the courage to sit quietly alone with you and ask these questions? Lord, frame for us what we do and why we do it. Give us wisdom to understand. Lord, we need this this hope that will help us persevere because we're all, every one of us, playing hurt in such significant ways. Some of us are physically hurt, some of us are emotionally hurt, some of us are carrying baggage of unforgiveness and bitterness that's been there for years. And Lord, we know that you will not fix that in a moment, but as we unpack it and as we seek you, we pray that you would give us the wisdom we need to persevere. And as Paul has said, that we would run the race. That as we near the end, we'll be able to say, yeah, we, we fought, we fought hard, we fought good. Lord, that's what we want. So this week, would you give us wisdom to do that, to sort and to ponder, to think, and allow your presence to change us from the inside out. Lord, we ask this, all of us together, in the name of Jesus, and we say, amen.